0: Welcome to Shooting the Shit. I'm Alex. I'm Oscar. We were random roommates. And now we're random besties. Well, welcome, Spencer. Uh, Thank you for joining us today on Shooting the Shit. Um, Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? uh, Kind of what you do, where you're quarantining, what life looks like for you these days?
1: Yeah, uh, my name is Spencer Slovic, um, went to college with Alex and Oscar, and I'm now living in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm screenwriter, film director, video maker, kind of do a bunch of things. Um, right now, I'm during quarantine, I've been doing some writing and also working on some political ads uh, for like Facebook and Instagram, which has been a lot of fun, but also working on my playwriting and screenwriting mostly. I've gone back into playwriting since quarantine started a bit. I was in Los Angeles for most of the quarantine so far, but last week I drove up to Cannon Beach, Oregon. Um, a long, 17-hour drive up up through Ca- all of California. I did all of California in one day and drove through all the wildfires. Um, <laughs> it was like the smoke of Mordor or something. You could see like Jesus. it was like pitch black in the middle of the day. It felt like it was like about the sun was setting or something. Like it was crazy. Um, and then we camped in Northern California and drove up the Oregon coast and. And now here in Cannon Beach, and we'll stay in Portland for the next like week and a half or so, and then go back down to California.
2: Right on. Well, I'm glad you made it safely.
1: Yeah, we were worried that uh, the place we were going to camp was going to be like smoked out or too close to the wildfires or something. But luckily, it was one little pocket of California that did not have wildfires.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. I just happened to cancel a trip this past weekend because of that. Because yeah, ended up being too smoked out. So I'm glad you got to get some camping in, and hope everyone else, uh, you know, stay safe. Um, yeah. Yeah. Glad, glad you can have, uh, you know, squeeze the time to uh, hang out with us here a little bit. We have a couple questions that we want to kind of uh, get going with, Alex. I don't know if you want to take it away with a couple of the uh, the starters, just to yeah. see where we might go with all of this.
2: Did you talk about kind of like the the plays that you've been writing lately? Just
0: like dive into that
1: a little bit. Yeah, um, well, I'm a part of this, like, it's called Echo Young Playwrights through the Echo Theater in Los Angeles. Um, it's just a group of emerging playwrights. And uh, honestly, I haven't really done a lot of playwriting the last couple years. I took a couple classes in college and had a play in high school that, um, like, won some awards and stuff. But uh, I took some time off and only really got back into it because of this program. Um it was Nice and quarantine to be like working with these other writers and like workshopping our stuff like every couple weeks. And so, mostly, I've been working on a play, like revising a play that I've been working on uh, on and off since like 2016. So, it's been a long time, but I've also been writing a couple new things and write some 10 minute plays for the first time in my life. Um, just some like short, kind of more punchy type of stuff that doesn't have to be like an hour and a half long or something. So,
2: nice. Do you want, do you want to tell our audience about this uh, play that's been in the works for four years? <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, Um, the one that's been in the works is basically about the next big West Coast earthquake and tsunami. It takes place on a beach right after the earthquakes happens and it's these two characters who are waiting there for the tsunami to hit basically. Um, And one of them reveals she's going to stay at the beach. She's not going to leave it once the tsunami comes and the other one basically tries to talk her out of it. And then magical things start happening. There's some weird characters that come in so I wrote the first draft of it initially in like 2016, came back to it like once or twice more in college. And finally I'm trying to like finish it, like do some final drafts of it with this workshop. And they're actually gonna be putting on a staged reading, a virtual stage reading probably, unless uh, things open up by like next May or June. Uh-huh. So it could be like an actual stage reading, like in person um, at the theater in LA, but uh if it's if it's virtual, I can invite people to come see it on zoom or something but and we're going to be having uh, quarterly staged readings virtually the first one will be virtual, um, where each of the playwrights has like a 10 minute slot where they can present something so I, I guess I invite people to that if people want to come watch it on zoom so that's yeah, for that I'm sure. going to do the one of the 10 minute plays I've been been writing one of the 10-minute plays I've been writing, um, which is called Two Bros Smash on a Hot Summer Day.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> about two guys playing
1: Super Smash Bros.
2: <laughs> classic. The classic misdirection. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Did, did he bone in the end? Did we get no. to know that part? Oh. It's, it, the, the title is unrelated, except That's for Smash Bros. Um, so about the is, it, is the, is the play still called Tsunami? Or Fisher, it has Fisher.
1: It. Okay. Yeah, did you see it in college at Stanford at all?
2: You I remember hearing you? about it. Okay. Um, but with this play, it seems like a lot of it is just like heavily on like, like two. It's almost like a like a bottle episode almost, where it's just like kind of two people talking on the beach for a while.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's, it's those two characters almost the whole time. And then there's two other characters who come in and out at different scenes. But uh-huh. basically a bottle up. I wanted to write, there's the first full length play I'd ever written. So I wanted to write something where the, it was like just one giant long scene.
0: Um, yeah.
1: I'm, when I'm writing screenplays, I get to like change the location every couple pages. And like it jumps around in time and place a lot. But for theater, I, I guess I was trying to do something that was like uniquely for theater and that's what
2: so kind of like a millennial then, waiting for Godot type play
1: yeah yeah it's kind of waiting for Godot ish except and honestly I, I'm not a big Beckett fan <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so it's I, I, it's like a millennial in the sense that it's a little more exciting and interesting and magical and yeah similar and so, vibe though
2: so when you when you're kind of building up this play over like multiple years, what's your process of like trying to develop this um, like dialogue between two characters? Like, where, where does the inspiration come from, or like where do you even like begin?
1: Uh, it's hard to know where to begin. You just kind of write down whatever you've got. Like, it's it's a process of continual brainstorming, kind of. Um, and like to begin, I just came up with that idea. Like, I want to write about two characters on the beach waiting for a tsunami. Uh, and things started flowing from there. So it was like, why, why does that feeling feel relevant to me? Like the waiting for tsunami type of thing. And I think when I first started writing it, it was like the spring and summer before the 2016 election. So it just kind of felt like the the country and the world wasn't going to change. It was just going to be like same old, same old Hillary, like nothing. Like it was a lot about climate change. I think, um, the tsunami especially was supposed to be kind of a, an environmental allegory. Um, and that was kind of the basis of it. And then I had to think about, like, why are the characters here? Like, what's their relationship to each other? Um, what has happened that would bring them to this place? Like, why, what are their two different motivations for being here? What are they trying to get out of each other? What are they trying to get out of this time? Like, what's, how does this event impact their life? You really just, like, the process of, of writing for me is just a, a giant list of questions you have to answer. Um, and then once you've got, like, all the questions you can think of answered basically which in this case takes years <laughs> then you can have a good idea of like what actually happens there in the moment like what they say what they do how the how the play
0: proceeds so kind of to make sure i have a good sense of that like you try to just fill in all the details as possible as far as the persona of a given character their internal motivations and then try to get what the world looks like and then from there you Do you do a thing where you step inside the head of this character that you developed and then are like, okay, this is what they would say and this is how they might say it to convey their thoughts or do you still see it from like a very third person omnipresent type of view, or I don't know if it even falls within any of those categories kind of how your brain works on these things.
1: Yeah, I mean, it shifts around between all of those ways of seeing it, I guess, like. I might write one draft where it's just from that third person omniscient point of view and it's just like here's what's happening in the broad general sense um here are the big actions that will happen in the play like they're talking to each other but sometimes their voices start to bleed with each other they sound similar um it usually takes me another draft or another pass through the scripts like for each character to make sure that their voice is distinct and that um that's when i really get into the heads of them more like like i'll do drafts of the scripts where i really focus on one character's arc and make sure that their emotional arc is clear through the whole thing, that their voice is distinct, that they, they really like, sound like themselves and are doing things that people like, wouldn't blink an eye, that that's that character doing it. And then you have to go back and do it for the other character. So really, a two-person sitting on the beach type of play is just one of the easier ones to do this for, except for the fact that you have to fill like an hour and a half with dialogue.
0: So that's kind of almost like Overling. It's like, okay, I got this one person down, and the other person's kind of rough now i'm going to go back and make sure they're consistent in that person who they're intended to be and then just kind of make sure they mix and match
1: yeah and then you go back and look at the other person again and like because every every pass changes their interactions and you gotta just keep going through it until it all feels settled i, I know there's some people who just kind of like outline a ton first and then go and write it and then they're basically done like they've, they've done all the work in the outlining and they think they've got a hold on it but uh, i don't work too well that way i've got to like be in the world and like inhabit the characters and um and that often like it's not like the cleanest method like after a draft of being really deep in one character's head like i'll go back and look at it and realize there's like some plot holes that came up because of that or uh maybe the other character got shortchanged in some places but it's really like an iterative process you go back over the thing over and over
0: when you are writing dialogue i always in my head it seems like really tricky to like write what people are saying because oftentimes when people speak they just kind of spew what's on their mind so how do you go about it is it similar do you just kind of like write a phrase or a sentence that someone might say and then be like okay that sounds natural or Mm -hmm. does it ever feel like oh man this sounds too much like i'm writing it as opposed to like how people actually talk
1: i think my first drafts are always kind of word vomit it's just whatever comes to my head i write down and it's My first drafts are actually the closest that my characters sound to like a real conversation, natural speech. Mm. Um, There's a lot of like ums and likes and like people rephrasing themselves and trying to like figure out what exactly they're trying to say, because that's what I'm doing as the writer, like trying to figure out what the characters are saying in the moment. Uh, And then I think on, on further passes through the script, then I make it a little more clear and straightforward. I take out all the ellipses and make the characters like say what they mean right off the bat, rather than like working their way around it more. Sorry, I forget what there was something else to your question that I that I hadn't
0: a response to, but Uh, I forget what exactly it it was, how the dialogue forms. Um, Yeah, whether you just kind of spit it out and then Oh, wait, have ever in those revised versions, when you kind of go back to it, do you feel like it loses some of that natural human tendency to like, do ums likes and kind of go back? Or is it like very much within the style of writing to make sure it's closer to perfect and smoother for like a performance piece?
1: Yeah, it really depends on the style, I guess. Um, some of my writing, I know right off the bat that the style I want is a little more naturalistic, uh, a little more laid back, like people just having a conversation in a room, for instance, I might have them say like and on um the more and like dance around what they're trying to say, uh, spend some time figuring out what they mean. Um, whereas in a lot of like traditional theater and uh, traditionally like the way dramatic writing is taught is that the theater is like a different space than real life where people can just say what they mean exactly and precisely and more eloquently, I guess, than people would be speaking in real life. Um, So it definitely is like kind of the, the higher uh, art form version of writing conversation where it's like much more direct and clear and eloquent than in real life and characters are saying things like, in a way that like directly transmits information of what, what they're trying to say and what the actions are in the scene and everything. And that's what I do in screenwriting a little more, I think um, in movies, uh, people are a little more, or, or people re- re- reading screenplays are a little more attuned to that. Like, especially if it's like not a, a naturalistic genre, if it's like sci-fi or something, for instance, I, I write some sci-fi stuff. Like people don't really care if the dialogue is like, people would be having an actual conversation because um, most of the time it's not real life. So they want the characters to just get to the point and uh, have the dialogue like carry the scene from from an action standpoint. So it, it's about, like some, some of our, my writing is a little more, na- I guess it's like that naturalism, like what level of naturalism do you want in the scene? Is the question there.
2: And how do you, um, I guess because it's kind of like just you writing the screenplay and then the conversation goes as it spews from your head, how do you go about like checking or like making sure that one, it's actually getting the point across, and two, it's actually like the form of the dialogue and the actions in the play or something that a regular audience member could understand.
1: There there are a couple of different ways I kind of check for that. The first is that I've been really lucky this quarantine to have that playwriting group. And I have another writers, writers group I work with too, where people can give feedback on that type of stuff and note moments that they did not quite understand or didn't follow. Um, and in the playwriting group, especially, they like read things aloud. So every couple of weeks, I have people read aloud my work for like ten minutes of the play or something. And that's really helpful in just hearing it uh, read back to me and see if people like if people stumble over the dialogue, that might be a section I want to change, or if something sounds really weird and unnatural, I, I make a note of that. Um, so that's like probably the best way. But you can't always get people to read your stuff out loud. Um, that's time-consuming. It's hard to organize and everything. So my go-to method usually is just a forgetful memory in the sense that I, uh, I'll write a scene, put it away for like a couple of weeks, completely forget it and come back and read it. And like, honestly, half the time it makes no sense to me. <laughs> <Or> like, <laughs> like, I'm like, I have an idea of what I was trying to do in this scene, but I didn't accomplish it and I need to like make some changes. Yeah. Um, so it's helpful, I guess when I have, like, multiple projects that I'm working on, at once, like, for instance, if I'm working on, like, a screenplay right now and another 10-minute play, I'll uh-huh. put away the 10-minute play for a couple weeks, and then when I come back to it, I've completely forgotten what I was trying to do with it and be able to, like, clarify it, I guess.
2: What, what do you find, uh, kind of jumping off that point about, like, your the group that kind of reads each other's plays, is there any difference in, like, maybe just, like, regular critiquing from friends versus, like, you're in this, group with a bunch of other play writers, like how does giving constructive criticism differ if at all and like what do you find to be the most useful way to get criticism about your own work
1: I think there's valuable things that like my friends can critique about my work and people who are playwrights themselves or like writers themselves can critique um writers tend to critique more on the level of the craft so when it comes to like dramatic moments and tension and character motivations and kind of all like the, the building blocks of the story. Um, writers are really good at pointing those out and uh, figuring out like what, what's wrong structurally with your work. Um, whereas when I share my work with friends, it's, I often get very valuable feedback about just like what they like about the characters in the story. And if it's like how it feels to someone who's not thinking about those building blocks. Um, I think those are two pretty different experiences just like, and I, I try and watch and, read things in in both of those modes one from like a writer's perspective and one from just like a viewer and consumer's perspective trying to like get into the experience and enjoy the experience so I think it's really valuable to see like did people enjoy this like what parts did they like what characters did they like what characters did they dislike why why not like that's all really important to a writer too not just like the mechanics of the story
0: how do you make sure to sort of maintain sort of that openness and receptiveness because you know, there's such degreeing freedoms of receiving feedback. And like, it's not the easiest thing to do, even if you do say you're good at it, like, how do you like, make sure to always be open to hearing other people's thoughts? And it what do you get defensive on? Or what's a little tighter for you sometimes?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's re- receiving feedback is hard. And it's something I think I had to learn. Um, I used to Kind of get more, I used to get a lot more defensive on my writing because I came into it with a really strong idea of what it was trying to do and what the scenes were supposed to accomplish. Um, and when it, they didn't accomplish that for people and they told me they were doing other things, I kind of shut down and like thought, like oh, it's just them like seeing it wrong or reading it wrong. And um, I think over the years, I've grown more receptive to people doing things like that and try to discover um, what one of my teachers has always called the note behind the note. So if someone gives you a note that they didn't like like something or um, some part rubs them the wrong way, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you should take that out of the script or take that out of the story entirely. Um, You got to think about like why they felt that or why they didn't like that part. And maybe you can adjust it or you can decide not to adjust it. There, There are a lot of times where I still, I like think about their notes and try and figure out why they felt that way about that part. And then sometimes I don't change it because I don't think I should change it or um, it runs contrary to what I've been feeling about the scripts or other people who've given me feedback like that part. And I would think it would hurt that taking it out. So
0: no, no, that's fair. Yeah, no, I can't. I feel like it's such a vulnerable position that you probably often find yourself in to have your craft just exposed all the time because its end goal is to be put in front of people yet again after all these iterations of reviewing prior.
1: And when it's with my friends, there's a whole nother level to it, because they, <laughs> they might know things in the script that like other people wouldn't necessarily know, like connecting it to my life. Um, yeah, all and the subtext. And all the subtext, yeah. Uh, so that's, I don't know, sometimes it's like way harder for me to give my writing to my friends and family than it is to give it to like relative strangers, because I don't know, there, there's like, it's like less impersonal that way. It's less objective, like. Like I, I've made the mistake of giving a script to my mom recently that like she like read into way too much. And my mom's also a psychiatrist, so that's like her job is to read into people like that. <laughs> um, so I was like, it reminded me of why I like never really shared my <laughs> writing with her. <laughs> and even even the screenplay I'm having produced, like she hasn't read
2: that yet. To to take a a bit of a step back from like the nitty gritty of screenplay writing do you Do you feel like you have a sense of what you're calling within the film industry is like why do you make films? Is there a unifying purpose or like you know is it in service to something
1: That's a question I ask myself regularly all the time <laughs> Excellent. <So. laughs> And I, I know a lot of people in the film industry who have like a very clear answer to that. Um, they might say like it's to represent a, a community or a topic or something that's not shown as much in film. Or um, they might just refuse the question altogether and be like, well, because I like making movies and movies are fun. Like, And I agree with that, too. But that I don't know, for me isn't necessarily um, the biggest justification for doing it. I think in quarantine, I've struggled with that a lot, too, because... I, I'm doing all this writing and there's no prospect of it going anywhere like for the foreseeable future because um, people aren't making the movies or putting them together but and ultimately I I have to like take a step back and reflect like on what the rest of the film industry looks like and what most of the movies and stuff coming out are like and like how like I would dif- do things differently from that Um, how my writing would differ and how the stories would differ and and realize like hey if it's me or them like what writing what I rather see out there in the world and what movies would I rather see? And usually the is my own. <laughs> so, um, I think I, I, I want to like make my own movies more for the, the love of it and the fun of, of doing it and writing. And I, I've grown addicted to writing and dependent on it. Um, but I'm also trying to do other stuff in the world too. Like I don't just want to write screenplays, um, for movies that like don't do anything or don't have any impact outside of, outside of the, the movie theater. So, um, that's why I've been working on those political ads during quarantine and uh, trying to get involved in some other ways in, in society.
0: No, that makes sense. Would you say, I'm assuming, when you were younger, when you first got into this, like when you started writing and whatnot, like at those early stages, it was sort of for the fun and joy of just being able to create things that you could share, I'm assuming?
1: Yeah, yeah. When I, when I first got into it, it was more just, it was fun. It was filled the boredom, well, something to do. And that's what it is, I guess, ultimately, like all kind of film and media like that and TV is to give people something to do, fill their boredom. Like during quarantine or like since coronavirus started, everyone's been talking about how like well everyone's been watching a lot of movies and TV. So it's it's been important.
0: That that's uh yeah, no, that's a good point. And then sort of on that, one question that we had was maybe what your thoughts are in terms of this experience that people are having where, you know, we're streaming movies, shows, and whatnot, um, in increased amounts in isolation, you know? Like, it's a thing we already did, but, like, we still had the chance to go out to, like, theaters and masses and enjoy, you know, whether it be a dramatic film and a whole audience feeling sort of this unified feeling in a room or laughing all at once. Do you think that's going to, you know, change the way we watch films as a whole now, is dumping these more solo experiences? experiences? Um, or do you think, you know, that it's key that we get back to watching like things in crowds and groups?
1: I think as soon as it's safe to do so from a public health standpoint, like people are going to want to go back to movie theaters and watch things in big crowds and groups. I think it's just a completely different experience. Well, for me, at least, that's coming from someone who whose favorite form of, of visual storytelling is movies. So there's a little bias there. <laughs> um, and with a movie that like potentially could be in theaters in the next couple of years, I'd like it to actually be in theaters. Um, but also I think during quarantine, I've been watching a lot more TV than I used to. Um, I didn't really watch TV as much and that TV feels like a more solitary activity than going to a movie. Um, I mean, you usually do it, you could do it with your family or with a couple of people, but especially streaming is often on your laptop. And the experience of watching all this TVs reminded me more of reading a novel than going to a movie as far as it's like, you're, you're doing like a chapter at a time and it's one big long story that you're kind of immersing yourself in over an extended period of time, like a couple of weeks or a month or multiple months even. Um, and, and that's like, there is some comfort in that in like binge watching and like, or reading a novel, reading something long and in depth. Um, but it's, it's, it's just a different experience. Like, like I, I actually haven't been watching many movies the last couple months. I used to watch like, um, I don't know, I watch at least a hundred movies a year. So that'd be like eight or nine movies a month on average. And the past three or four months, I've probably watched like eight or nine movies in total. Um, they just aren't, I don't know, there's something dissatisfying feeling to them when it's like, you can't actually go out there and experience the world like the people in the movies or like um, going back to that novel metaphor, it feels like reading a short story, watching a movie. And when you have all this time to kill without seeing anyone, like a short story is not going to cut it. Like
0: <laughs>
1: I-, I want a TV show that lasts like five seasons or um, maybe I should watch like a 10 hour movie broken up into parts or something.
2: <laughs> something with mileage or you could do the full like Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, like massive marathon.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> something like that.
0: No, I really like that, um, that analogy to a novel. Yeah, we need something for the long haul here to just... <laughs> drive so yeah no i'm a big fan of tv
1: i've been reading a lot more books too during quarantine actual novels because yeah
0: (laughs) as far as sort of we've talked about film work and some play work um anything you have on the more tv show side of things or you know um stuff that you might be working on there and the reason i bring it up is because you talked about sort of this temporal component to films and shows where shows can kind of be there with you for a long time, but movies have to come in, make an impact and draw out all within like a more confined time frame. So anything you have um, in the works on that and or that you've explored on the TV side of things?
1: Yeah, like a month and a half ago, actually, I wrote a TV pilot for the first time. Um, I'd been meaning to do it for a while, but I, I didn't really have the time or energy for it until quarantine. So I wrote a quick first draft of it, um, got some notes and feedback from friends and in, I'm like in the middle of a second draft. Uh, the first draft was a half hour drama. It's kind of like dramedy style. Like that's what I thought it was going to be. But I realized after talking with a lot of friends that it's more of an hour long drama and um, needs some more time to breathe. So it's been their vision process has been going back and kind of fleshing it out. and All the stuff I talked about earlier as far as the writing process it all holds true for TV. Watching TV is like reading a novel. It all flows smoothly and takes up a lot of time. But writing for it, you really you like have to write one episode at a time and that's a lot more time consuming and it's hard it's like like I wish I could write the whole tv season in like a couple weeks and kind of experience it and be in it like like I would with a novel or reading a novel or watching a tv show um but now I see why they're like writers rooms and like each writer in the writer's room writes a different episode and they all work on that for like months and um ideally the whole product comes out feeling like coherent thing that uh cohesively like goes episode to episode and tells like a continuous story but like from an individual writer's perspective it's like the amount of work that has to go into each part of that has to be so much that it's like it, it's implausible to try and do the whole thing one person i know there are some writers to do like who write the whole thing themselves um what's that guy's name the guy who wrote euphoria uh, he's the son of the the writer who wrote the second star wars movie but he, he wrote the whole first season of euphoria himself he's the only writer on the show um <laughs> and and honestly i think it 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 shows like the the writing on that show like i mean it, it's lurid and soapy it's it's like a gen z soap opera basically but but it's pretty sloppy especially towards the ends like and even something like watchmen which i just finished uh the other day Damien lindelof wrote on every episode but there was a whole writer's team that wrote with him. So it was kind of based around one person's vision, but it was a lot more teamwork that went into it than that. So I think that's like, ideally I do want to write for TV um, at some point. I would would love to try it out and like be in a writer's room or two. Um, I think my heart still lies with movies as far as the writing and directing side goes, but there's something really fun and appealing about working with other people on the writing like that and the teamwork that goes into it.
2: But there there is a there is a, a portion of your uh, career that we did wanna reach, which I think probably connects to T V and the political ads that you've been working on. So could you tell us a little bit about what drove you to or I guess you kind of told us that you wanted to have like a little bit more of like an impact or like a more tangible impact with uh while doing the same work that you do, right?
1: Yeah. Well, when I moved to LA, I worked a day job in like Facebook and Instagram advertising. Um writing, directing, producing videos, uh, which is a lot of fun. It was like really hands on. I got to do a lot with graphics and um, I learned a ton about advertising and not stuff I really wanted to learn, but I learned it anyway. And (laughs) I was at that company for like a year and a half and they were like doing super successfully with these ads. Um, uh, Tons of people were buying their products and everything, but I had an urge to like do more with them. Like I thought there was a ton of potential, like seeing how many people actually like bought products from the Facebook ads. I was like, there's gotta be a lot more potential to use these methods that this company was learning um, for like maybe nonprofits or political uh, campaigns and stuff. So I I left that job at the end of December um, because I just optioned one of my feature screenplays and decided to work on some writing for a while and then coronavirus hit i I always thought I wanted to get involved a little more politically, um, work on some campaigns or something, or at least Canvas like help out a little bit before the 2020 election. and uh, what I realized I could do pretty well from a remote standpoint was edit videos and make these types of videos. So it took a while to get into it. Um, the campaigns didn't necessarily like trust me to make their ads and like run their ads. but actually the last couple of weeks, I've finally gotten stuff up and live, and they're working so well. Um I'm hoping I can I can spread it out to a couple more campaigns at least before November. Um one of the campaigns is like making ten times more on the on donations from the videos I made than than what they're spending promoting them. Uh so it's like I'm glad like I, I I I knew these these techniques and like these ways of making videos and testing them um and like learning from the data. That was the whole key at this old job I had. Uh I knew this stuff could be applied really well. Um, but I kind of like I didn't quite believe it myself until I saw it. So it was really cool, like this past week, seeing seeing ads work so well.
2: Awesome. Yeah. And, and what types of candidates are these? Uh,
1: mostly working for like progressive and Democrats is um, uh, I'm working on one th- Democrats race in Nevada, a congressional campaign. She's running for the US House um, in, in a district where uh, it's been held by Republicans for the last 30 years. So it's uh, it's a bit of a long shot, but honestly, I think she's gaining momentum. The um, ads are doing really well. There's a big voter base in Nevada that like wants to help out, contribute to this campaign. Uh, I think she's got a decent shot, actually. So I'm hoping my videos can help with that somewhat. Um, and I'm working on another race in Los Angeles. So I want to do something a little more local. Uh, in California, there's the the primaries are like the top two vote getters goes to the general election. It's kind of a runoff system. So Oftentimes, there can be like two people from the same party in the general election. Um, so it's this Congress district in the San Fernando Valley um, where the top two vote getters are both Democrats in the primary, and so it's two Democrats running against each other in the election. And the incumbent is like fine; he's a Democrat, but it's like he doesn't support Medicare for All or Green New Deal, or, like it's pretty uh, like on the conservative side for a Democrat. So I'm working with his competitor, who's um, definitely more progressive in that sense and uh i've been hesitant to tell other congressional campaigns um that i might work with about that race because there's like this blacklist i don't know if you guys know about that where the democratic national committee uh basically said that if any like advertiser or any company works with a competitor to an incumbent democrat then they'll be like blacklisted and no other incumbent democrats will work with them um i don't think it's like too serious a threat but like it's kind of, they, I guess they want to just protect the, the incumbent Democrats that much that they they'll even like blacklist people who work with more progressive options. So for those two, I'm working on a state, a California state assembly race up in the Bay, the same one Mo was working on. I don't know if he mentioned that at all. Um, he got me involved to help with some of their ads. I'm working on a video for them right now, and then I've been in touch with or I. Josh Kravitz's campaign almost hired me to make videos, yeah. Um, <laughs> but they, they didn't end up doing that. So he's referring me to some others who might be interested. Nice. I'm, I'm thinking maybe just a small little two month long business before the election. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Um, no, that's really cool. How do you go about making sure that you're able to communicate what they want? Do they like give you a list of like, here are things you want you to showcase or do you guide them using sort of this marketing knowledge that you picked, up and say like oh like record yourself like doing this or saying this like how's that process go about
1: yeah I ask them a little bit about their strategy as far as ads go what they're envisioning sometimes the campaigns are like oh we want to target moderate voters because those are the ones we think we can swing democrat by the election or um one of the, cam- the nevada campaign wants me to target conservative women they think conservative women can switch parties potentially in this election but other than that it's kind of open-ended the Videos I'm making, I guess most of these campaigns have really only been running sale image ads, which are just a picture of their candidate. It'd be like one line of text about like support a candidate who will protect our public lands or something and then like vote on November 3rd. So my videos are a lot more in depth. I usually have to go pull a lot more language from their websites. Uh, I kind of, the video footage, I really use whatever they have. Sometimes the candidates will already have shot some videos themselves or like have a lot of footage of themselves and I'll just edit that together in a way that works for me or I'll pull footage from YouTube, I'll find other sources. Once in a while, I have to ask a candidate like, can you get more footage? Like, There's nothing of you on the internet, like we need voters to (laughs) see your face. (laughs) So it it really depends. It's been kind of, I've been, I don't know, scrappy with it during quarantine because I can't go shoot anything myself in person.
2: Right. How much FaceTime do you get with these candidates themselves? Because I know it, it varies widely from campaign to campaign.
1: Yeah, it really depends on on the size of the campaign. Um, for instance, the state assembly campaign, I'm mostly talking with the candidate. It's like my mm-hmm. main points of contact. Um, whereas the congressional campaigns, one of them I've spoken to the candidate once. Um, I've emailed with her a couple times, but actually like face-to-face, I'm mostly talking with the campaign manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one doesn't even have a campaign manager. So it's it's just a whole big team of volunteers. And wow. so I work with like the, they have like a digital team that I'm, I'm in the loop with.
2: And so when you're developing this campaign ad, how much of it is like trying to get like firsthand accounts from the team? How much is like you're doing like research on like what they stand for and then trying to craft a message around those values?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of the scripting work is is refining their message and clarifying like or packing a bunch of their messages into one video. Um, It kind of depends on what the video is going for, but uh, i mostly like I mostly try and just draw on things that are already written down on the website, so I can point to those and be like that's what you say your campaign's about like once in a while one one campaign I tried working for in like april i, I made a video for them, and they said like actually we don't like really align ourselves with those ideas that you <laughs> had go, like, oh, shit, maybe I shouldn't be making videos for you though. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, I got this from your website. Like, this is material that you've been putting out saying this uh-huh. stuff about your candidate. So, so that, was, that was a bad example of it. But usually if, if I just kind of stick to the script of, of what they've been saying so far, these websites have pretty extensive platforms and everything. So if I just pull from language they're already using, um, then the messaging seems to be on point.
2: That's so interesting that you're kind of this middle person between the content on the website, which probably doesn't get as much traffic as like an ad that people will passively consume. So you're like the middle person between like what the public will more likely consume and the actual content of the campaign.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's similar to my corporate job where the video ad is supposed to be kind of like a window into the actual product. Just something like really intriguing and interesting that that'll make people go learn more if they want to learn more themselves or it'll make them just go buy it or donate, you know, so, the, so the ads, I know I try and keep them short and concise and clear and on, on, on topic on message kind of just like. Do you, like our current, for instance, in the Nevada race, um, I started out an ad with like, should we be bombing Nevada? And it's showing the the candidate like digging a hole in the ground in her garden. (laughs) And and then it moves on to talk about how the incumbent, the guy in Congress, um, the Republican, like put forward a bill to give over like 600,000 acres of Nevada public lands to the army to use as a bombing range. And that ad has been doing really well because people like, It like across the political spectrum in Nevada, like don't want their lands destroyed. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Especially in a kind of rural district like that. There's a lot of open, open lands there. Um, And then I go on on to like talking about the candidate and how she's like going to protect the land, like cares about the environment and wants people to have like good jobs and opportunities and everything, like all that language from the website. And so it's really just like, you need something to hook. It's like the video itself. is kind of the hook, like, if, if you get a voter interested in that, then they might go learn more and and either like donate or plan on voting for the person. And that's what I think a lot of political ads do badly right now. When I look through the candidates I might work with and like ads they've been running like a picture of them doesn't say anything like, or just like one policy point. These voters have heard all these policy points over and over and over the past couple of years, especially with the presidential cycle. So like you got to do a little more to distinguish yourself from just like, um, this is my stance on the issue. Like, People need to be intrigued and interested and like kind of hooked on an emotional level even if ultimately it's like a hook up something pulling them into a more policy issue driven lens
0: well i think we uh might wrap up the session there spence but before we let you go we want to run you through a little segment we run all our guests through known as our just rapid fire questions
2: okay yes yeah, This to start off we're gonna ask you what's your favorite guilty pleasure movie or top three?
1: Ooh. Favorite girls uh the Pink Panther. Nah. Nice. The, the two thousand six remake with Steve
2: Martin. And Steve Beyonce Martin,
0: and Beyonce dude. <laughs> And Beyonce,
2: yeah. And Leon the Professional. Yeah. I forgot his name, but <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's in that too.
0: Okay. Um the next one, kind of similar. What are your top three favorite movies for
1: 2020? Yeah, oh man, I've I've only watched like 10 movies that came out in 2020.
2: Actually, seeing Um, seeing that only 10 movies came out in 2020, (laughs) what have been your three favorites that you've watched in 2020? Might open it up a bit.
1: Uh, You know, one of my favorites um, is called Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. And it's... (laughs) What a rhyme. (laughs) It's starring Kristen Wiig. um, Oh, what? And... It hasn't come out yet. I saw it as like a a preview screening back in January and it was supposed to come out this summer and they delayed it to next summer. So I've seen this movie that won't come out for like a year and a half until after I saw it. That was pretty good. That was funny. As far as movies that I've seen in 2020 that aren't necessarily just, uh, that didn't just come out this year. Tony Erdman, this German movie about a woman whose dad comes and joins her on her consulting gig and puts on different disguises and pretends to be different people to annoy her. Um, (laughs) That's really good. It was so good. Uh, It's an absurd premise, but it's really good. Um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That was great. Let's see, Thelma and Louise. I never saw that until this year. Also a very good movie. Uh,
2: Favorite running route in LA?
1: Elysian Park. It's the park that goes around Dodger
2: Stadium. They have some great trails there. Are you familiar with that one?
0: uh i know where it is just because of where spencer's house is and knowing where dodger stadium is i have not run that but it sounds like a good trail spence says it's good it's good folks go run it if you're out there yeah um and then final question to wrap it up favorite salt and straw flavor
1: chocolate freckled brownie oh <laughs> I'm, I'm a sucker for chocolate and brownies so salt and straws Dude. got one bring back death know. by chocolate
2: Rickard Dining. Yeah. <laughs> Reinstate yourself. Oh, I awesome. need to look up, is there a
1: recipe for that online?
2: There should be, honestly. I'd love to
1: make it myself. Yeah, yeah. that would be so good.
2: Awesome. Spencer Slobig, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for, for weathering the, the Zoom limit. No worries. <laughs> Fucking yeah, Zoom. you grabbing me. Yeah. Do you have anything that you want to plug before we break for real?
1: Anything that I want to plug?
2: Yeah, anything um, going on in your life?
1: If you ever see a movie coming out called The Resurrectionist, I wrote that, mm. they might change the name, but it like in the next year or two, who knows? The the producers I've been working with on it finally finished their rewrite.
2: Yay, um, wow.
1: And got a few notes from the financers, but not many. This is just like a week ago. So for a while during quarantine, I thought it wasn't even gonna happen, but I guess they've still been working on it. They're just not keeping me updated very well. So, and they say they might be able to shoot it during quarantine because it's like not too big a cast or yeah, it's like not too many locations.
2: Six people, tops.
1: The cast has, like, six to seven people tops.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: yeah, I don't know. Exciting stuff. Maybe it could could happen. I'm not getting my hopes up too much, but, like, it
2: could be cool. (laughs) Right on. Looking forward to it. All right, Spencer, thank you so much again.
1: All right. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It was a lot of fun.